Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Monday as we kick off a brand new week, post-holiday week. Get ready, the fight for America never ends. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Please check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore and on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, by email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Send me a note. Let me know what's on your mind, and I might read yours on the air. We got a good one or two coming up here at the end of the show. So shoot me a note. Let me know what you're thinking. All right, I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving a fun and relaxing time with those you love. I hope you ate a lot, watched a lot of football, World Cup, and or movies. The carb coma is done at least until tomorrow. (laughs) Welcome to a new week here on the show. I want to tell you that on Wednesday this week, we're going to have a really big show and a really important discussion with Dr. Asim Mahotra. He is a renowned British cardiologist who just published a path-breaking research paper on the mRNA COVID shots and dangerous cardiac events by reviewing the data. His work is really blowing the lid off of the threats posed by these shots in terms of blood clots leading to heart attacks, strokes, emboli, and other issues, in many cases leading to severe injury and even death. He's been out there across Europe speaking to parliaments and members of parliament. He's been on the BBC. He's been, he's been a lot of places, even though they've tried to shut him up and silence him. And he's got quite a story to tell in terms of what got him focused on this, a very significant and immediate loss 
to him and his family. So he, you know, so many people are still afraid to tell the truth about what's going on with these shots and vaccine injury, but we are not. And that's why I'm going to bring you the brilliant Dr. Mahotra for an extensive interview here on Wednesday. Not to be missed. Tell everyone you know, everybody should be listening to this podcast anyway, um, but particularly this week with Dr. Mahotra on uh, Wednesday. Okay, today I want to deal with what is going on in China, also what is going on on the border, and one of the immediate things that the new Republican Congress is going to have to do when they come in starting in January. We're also going to get a view from the Biden White House with White House correspondent for Newsmax, uh, James Rosen, my longtime friend. He's going to bring us the inside scoop on what in Sam Hill is going on over there. And I've got to ask him about the dog that hasn't barked. You know, the one that we talk about on occasion on this show, the secretive Susan Rice, the Obama's back channel into the Biden White House. That's going to be very interesting. Plus, as I said, your emails. So buckle up. First, though, the Monica memo. It started in Wuhan. It ends in Wuhan. We have these massive protests that have erupted all across China. This is unheard of. These are the biggest mass protests since Tiananmen Square in 1989. I went to China. I've been to China a couple of times, but the first time I went was with President Nixon when I worked with him in the early to mid-1990s, last years of his life. And we went to China, and uh, it was 1993, so it was already about four years after Tiananmen, but it was incredibly fresh. The fact that they mowed down and killed their own people who were standing up asking for more freedom and democracy, and they did it in a peaceful way. And actually, in China, they have no choice but to do it in a peaceful way. Yes, they can throw rocks and, and things at the police and the military, but guess what? They have no personal firearms. The Chinese people, like the people under any dictatorship, are always disarmed. Why do you think the left wants to do it to you? This is not about hunting deer. This is not even about your your personal security. The Founding Fathers gave us the Second Amendment and made it number two out of the first ten for a reason. They only put freedom of speech, assembly, and religion first, because obviously without those things, you have no free country, which is why the left has all of that under assault. But they made the right to bear arms number two for a reason, because you can't have the first stuff unless you have the second stuff. So they didn't make uh, the right to bear arms number 10. They didn't wait for other amendments like number 25 or whatever. No, they made it number two. And again, it wasn't for hunting your food, and it wasn't even for your personal protection. The reason the founders put it in there is to give you the right to fight back against your government. Should the American government fall to tyrants and dictators, because the founding fathers knew what human behavior was all about, They knew how human beings are constantly pulled toward power and control. Sound familiar? Yes, it's an age-old thing since the dawn of humanity. Man has always struggled to lord over other men. 
And so the founders knew what human nature was. And so they gave us the Second Amendment to be able to, for us to be able to have our own ability to fight back against a potentially tyrannical government, which, by the way, is on the scene. So one of the big lessons coming out of China right now for us is never, ever give up your guns. And in fact, if you're thinking about getting a firearm, do it now. If you already have firearms, get more, get ammunition, make your base secure. But the Chinese people don't have that ability. They don't have personal use of force. All they have is numbers. And that is incredibly powerful. Those numbers are very powerful. You got, oh, what, 1.6 billion, is it now, uh, in China? And yes, the People's Liberation Army is massive. There are millions and millions and millions of soldiers under arms in China. And the police force also massive. But there are more civilians in China than there are of them, and certainly a lot more civilians than there are in the CCP regime. So it, it is very, very interesting, isn't it, what's happening now in China? And again, I mean, all they have to fight back is their fists, maybe there, maybe some rocks or something, but they don't have individual weapons. That's why never let the Second Amendment go under and never give up your guns, period. You know, all of this is coming from the CCP's zero COVID policy, which was always absurd and never had anything whatsoever to do with the virus or its spread. It was only and always about power and control. Sound familiar? Yeah. So the CCP jumped the shark with this latest draconian lockdown and the people are in revolt. Wouldn't it be incredible if the CCP's own hand brought it down? I mean... History has produced stranger things, right? And little sparks create massive revolutions and wars. Look at World War I with the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand. Boom, one assassination and the world is in war. So one little spark can really set things aflame. I don't know what's going to happen in China here. I honestly don't know. You know, the CCP is incredibly powerful and ruthless, so we will see. Now, remember, back in 1989, you had peaceful protests for freedom. The Chinese, even though they're essentially walled off, they're not as walled off as, say, the North Korean people. So they got a whiff of what was going on in the Eastern Bloc and with the Soviet Union and the wall coming down and people there really striving for freedom and making it happen. And so they got a whiff of that and they decided that they wanted some more freedom too. And the problem for them was that CCP was not weak. It wasn't weak like the Soviet system was weak and ready to collapse. And those Eastern Bloc communist regimes, they were waiting for the backup from the Soviets that never came. And so it all collapsed like a house of cards. CCP is not like that. CCP learned that lesson. They're a lot smarter, more disciplined, tougher, and more brutal than the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc ever were, okay? And we're talking about really brutal. Um, the Russians were incredibly brutal during the Soviet era. But the CCP has learned that lesson. So they disarmed their population and they have an iron grip. So I don't know what's going to happen here. You know, in 1989, you had the peaceful protests coming out. 
And of course, so that famous image of the one man standing before the tanks, right? I mean, that was an absolutely incredible image, just standing there peacefully, no weapon. But the regime rolled out the tanks and killed thousands of Chinese who were peacefully protesting, thousands of them. It was brutal. And I have, look, she just had this party conference and, and Congress a couple of weeks ago. He is now basically emperor for life. And once that happened, sort of like a more, a more significant way of what the Democrats are now doing here, which is after the election, now they're talking about, oh, mask recommendations again. And, you know, Randy Weingarten is talking about, oh, we're in a tridemic now. We've got uh, COVID on the rise. We got the flu and we got RSV. So, so she's tweeting, uh, laying the groundwork for school closures again. Mark my words. So they're doing it on a more minor level here, but it's all of a piece. So with their zero COVID policy, now that Xi has been re-elected uh, basically to emperor for life, he is exercising all deliberate power in locking down these populations. And what is incredible is you've got the country now is in total revolt. So while they took it, as we all did early on in 2020 with the lockdowns and everything, because nobody knew what this virus was and everybody was flying by the seat of their pants. Well, now people know and they know it's for most people a more minor kind of thing. If you catch COVID, I'm not talking about the vulnerable, the elderly, etc. And we're going to talk to Dr. Malhotra about this on Wednesday. But it is, it's like an annoying flu now. And the people in China now know that, but they have no freedom of movement, no mobility, no nothing. They got a QR code that if they want to go to the grocery store, they got to scan the QR code that they are COVID free before they can go in. It is, it is a dystopian hillscape in China. And what's incredible is that the crowds in Wuhan have come out. The crowds in Wuhan have come out and they are chanting, it started in Wuhan, it ends in Wuhan. Wow. That is like out of a movie. Like a screenwriter would be writing that line. It started in Wuhan, it ends in Wuhan. That's pretty amazing. All across China, you've got this tremendous public anger at these uh, draconian COVID controls. And it's all in the streets now. You got uh, in Beijing, which is usually like the last area to get protests because that's the seat of government. That's where the police force is the strongest, the military is the strongest. Well, you got, and and it's starting in colleges and universities, it's the kids, they're coming out, leading the charge here, and they're all chanting democracy and the rule of law in Chengdu. You got a video showing people shouting, we want freedom, we want democracy. And then in Shanghai, massive protests, and you got a crowd chanting for Xi Jinping to step down. This is a really big deal. People have had it with the dystopian nightmare. They pushed it too far like the left always does, right? They push it a little too far. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into this because there's, apart from the guns, there's another lesson that we need to be taking from what is happening right now in China. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, listen up. 
We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Okay, guys, welcome back. I know I mentioned that we will cover some of this border stuff, and we will do that certainly later in the week. But what is happening in China now is just too important just to skate over it because it's just, it is history in the making. And again, we don't know how this is going to end, probably not going to end well for the Chinese people. But with every revolt, Just keep in mind that what history shows with every revolt, the regime gets a little weaker. And yes, they crack down. So in the moment, they look stronger. But we have seen this throughout the Cold War, particularly behind the Iron Curtain, you know, with revolts in Hungary, revolts in Poland, revolts in the Czech Republic, or it was Czechoslovakia at the time. And the Soviets had to go in and they cracked down and they killed a bunch of people and they looked strong and brutal at the time. And they were strong and brutal at the time. But with every single one of these revolts like this, it chips away at the invincibility of the regime. So make no mistake, regardless of what happens here, this is not a positive development for the CCP. It's a positive development for the Chinese people and for the world. But the CCP understands, and it's going to be very interesting because she gets it. They understand that this is taking another brick out of the wall. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to react here. I don't think that this is going to be a peaceful end to this. We'll see. But... They understand, look, the Chinese have a long view of history, and they understand that with every single one of these protests, not good, not good for them. Look, it's also really important, a couple of other things here. A lot of people in the West don't really have a grasp on how horrific life is in China. They've built these massive quarantine camps with room for tens of thousands, if not millions of Chinese who, even if they get a negative PCR test for COVID, are sent there because maybe they've been exposed. So this isn't even for the people who test positive. That's a whole other situation. 
But we've got a video showing a toddler being shipped off to one of these camps. They are concentration camps. They call them quarantine camps. They are concentration camps. Going out in the capital of Beijing means, as I mentioned, you got to scan a QR code to enter things like shops and restaurants or even to take public transport. And now, you know, they've got China has long been a surveillance state, but now they've added the contact tracing part of the surveillance system. So if you're visiting the same places as somebody who later turns up infected with COVID, well, that can land you in one of these quarantine facilities where conditions are so poor that people say that they're buying chamber pots that they can go to the bathroom in while they're there. I mean, talk about crimes against humanity, right? And when we talk about the surveillance system, China is a surveillance state. And we're going to talk here in a minute about how the left, this is what they want and what they are beginning to do here and across the West. But all of these protesters are certainly taking their lives in their hands because they're being monitored. There are cameras everywhere, facial recognition, all of that. So they're out in the streets protesting for more freedom, knowing that the hammer is going to come down on them in all likelihood. And yes, there are millions now in the streets in China. God bless them and please pray for them. But the Chinese have the ability to scan millions of faces in the streets. And these people are going to pay the price for doing what they're doing. So pray for them. And that brings us to our own regime in Washington, D.C. You know, it's not just the Chinese. The Chinese, Iranian, and Brazilian people are right now in open revolt against tyrannical control. And the silence from our quote-unquote president and his regime is deafening. The United States of America always used to stand as a beacon, a moral beacon of light and hope for those who crave more freedom, for democracy, for Republican small r governance of the kind that we always had until recently. So we were always that shining city on a hill that Reagan spoke about, a beacon of hope. Why do you think everybody still wants to come here? Beacon of hope where people are free. And the government of the United States has always stood for and with those people around the world clamoring for more freedom, standing up to tyrannical regimes, dictators, despots, and if not offering military hope, or military support, diplomatic support, anything concrete. If we were not in the position of doing that, then certainly the President of the United States, as America's leader, has always offered a moral word of support to these people. This has been true throughout our history. You don't have to get involved with boots on the ground to offer support for these people. The president of the United States and his government at any given moment can certainly offer a moral word of support. It costs the president nothing to do that. And yet you have these people around the world in open revolt against tyranny, China, Brazil, Iran, and then you, you can add the Canadian people, the truckers with their anti-COVID movement, the farmers in the Netherlands. Oh, Monica, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, you haven't heard about it because the propaganda press buries all of this. But all of these people are in open revolt against tyranny, and in particular, the COVID tyranny. 
The anti-lockdown movement is everywhere. Now, Brazil is a different thing because they're protesting what they believe is a stolen election to get a socialist, a World Economic Forum guy back into power, Lula. But it's still a pushback against tyranny. And you have not heard word one from this president or his administration. Doesn't that just tell you everything? It tells you that they're all on the same team. And in particular with China, this silence coming not just from the administration, but Hollywood, the NBA, sports teams. I mean, they're all out there with their virtue signaling all the time. They're screaming about our democracy morning, noon, and night. Oh, Donald Trump is ripping apart our democracy. January 6th, tearing down our democracy. Well, here they've got a chance to actually stand with people who are clamoring for real democracy in China, and yet crickets, crickets, because they do so much business in China. So the money is just, it trumps everything. Of course, they're all just whores for all of the money and the Chinese market, but also because their authoritarian impulses are the exact same of the CCP. Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, just last week, it was all over social media, just last week talking about how the CCP has created such a fantastic model for the rest of us, for the Western world in China. And man, we should all aspire to be that. Remember Tom Friedman of the uh, New York Times a couple of years ago was talking about what a great model China was. And yes, they've got an authoritarian government. Gosh, golly, that is such an inconvenience. But wow, what a great model for the rest of us. Without all the pesky people with all of their opinions. This is what the elites, the ruling class in the United States and the West, what they really believe. And if they had had their way, especially during COVID, what do you think? We would be the exact same with a QR code to go into shops and things. Oh, have you been vaccinated? Yes or no? How recent was your last vaccination? Are you COVID free? This is exactly what they wanted here. So never give up your guns. I mean, that's major lesson. But now the Chinese people are all part of this now. Chinese people kind of get it. I mean, I think they always got it. They just, they had to be pushed up against the wall. You know, it was like what I was saying here about right before the the midterm elections with regard to inflation, gas prices, crime, cities in collapse, border out of control, that people in deep blue states uh, will put up with a lot. And the American people will put up with a lot until the moment that they don't. And we saw that in a lot of areas in the midterms. We did see that. Look, it's basically New York and California that flipped uh, congressional seats blue to red, which is why the Republicans have the majority. It's those blue states. So people will put up with a law for a long time until the second that they don't. And that's when the change comes in. And now you're seeing in China, you're seeing a, a tipping point here. These Chinese people have had it with you know guilt by association which of course is a long standing communist thing guilt by association right so you know if they're in a store and they're covid negative but somebody in the store is tested positive they're both going to the quarantine camp 
So one Beijing resident wrote on social media, quote, don't get tested if you need to go out. Getting a COVID test is now the biggest chance to get infected or put yourself at risk because they know that they're going to be thrown into one of these quarantine facilities, right? Because China just continues to send every infected person and their close contacts to these concentration camps. That's what life is like in China. It is a hellscape. Never, ever give up your guns. But also make no mistake that Fauci and Biden, Randy Weingarten, all of the, the ruling class, that they wanted this dystopian nightmare for us too. They still do. Randy Weingarten tweeting about closing schools again. Well, she didn't tweet exactly that, but she's alluding to it like, oh, a lot of sickness around, a lot of COVID, a lot of flu, a lot of RSV. I don't know. They still want to do this. They admire the Chinese system. They aspire to it. And they would inflict it on us in a second. Look, remember at the beginning with the lockdowns, 15 days to slow the spread, which came into what, two years or something? They will never give up power and control. Once they seize it, that's it. And the only remedy, well, we've got two remedies. One is at the ballot box. And the other is the fact that we've got the Second Amendment, that if push ever comes to shove in this country, that we have the ability to fight back. You know, our so-called leaders and our propaganda press, they did not celebrate the anti-lockdown protests here or in Canada Remember with the truckers or anywhere else, the Netherlands, you probably haven't even heard about that, as I said, because they don't cover it. They don't want you to know, and they don't agree with it. So they certainly did not celebrate any of us who were anti-lockdown, anti-mandates. The protests here, people got suspended off of social media, thrown off for that very reason. But they're reporting the sum of coming out of China, but they wouldn't do that for us here. So they can stick a sock in their coverage because, you know, and I see a lot of people, oh, the hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy. It's hierarchy. They're not hypocrites. They're power mad tyrants. It's hierarchy. I also want to report to you something that uh, Gordon Chang put up on Twitter. He's incredible. And he tweeted, He tweeted yesterday, many compare today's protests in China to those of 1989. That was Tiananmen Square. There are many similarities, but 1949 is a better comparison. Remember, 1949 was the original communist takeover, communist revolt led by Mao Zedong in China that brought in the CCP into China. He says 1949 is a better comparison. Then the nationalists had, in the words of the great historian Yu Yingxi, lost people's hearts. They fled to Taiwan, the nationalists, right? And the CCP took it over. He continues, the CCP has now lost hearts across the country. That is a really important point. And it gets to what I was saying earlier about with every revolt, it chips away at their power. So they might still have power and there might still be a brutal crackdown, but with every revolt like this, it chips away. And he is correct. The CCP has lost the hearts of the Chinese people across the country. He went on to say, protests in China are spontaneous and spreading like wildfire. The Communist Party appears dazed and for the moment does not know how to react. If popular anger does not subside soon, expect the CCP to use massive force. That's right. 
zero COVID, President Xi for life, and the CCP, it's all of a piece. So when Chinese citizens resist zero COVID, they are directly challenging the authority of the regime. The stakes are incredibly high. And I hope it doesn't come to bloodshed in China, but it may very well. So please uh, keep the Chinese people in your thoughts and your prayers today and that they have the hand of God on them to get through this. I fear the worst. I hope I am not right about this, but we'll see. The Chinese people now, to Gordon's point, they no longer have any kind of loyalty to the CCP, and it looks like so many of them no longer have any fear. They know the surveillance state is watching them. They know they could be executed for this or thrown into prison for the rest of their lives, and they don't care. That is extremely encouraging for the Chinese people and the future of China. It's very dangerous for the CCP. So pray for them in their hour of need right now and understand that our own tyrants here are watching very closely of what's going on there and that they in a flash would have done and still would do if they had the opening and if we did not have the second amendment, never ever give up your guns. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to the great James Rosen, White House correspondent for Newsmax. We're going to get the view from what is going on at that White House. And I want to ask him about Susan Rice, too. So very interesting conversation coming up next. But first, I want to take a moment to welcome a new sponsor, Man Crates. Man Crates has hundreds of totally unique gift options available for all of the special men in your life. For the rest of the season, buy one crate, Get one 50% off with the code FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. Code FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. They have hundreds of totally unique gift options available at mancrates.com. Mancrates packs his gift in unique containers, so watching him open his gift is an unforgettable experience. Personalization is free, and every Mancrates gift comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. He'll think it's awesome, or man crates will make it right. For the rest of the season, buy one, get 50% off with code FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. Again, that's FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. We'll be right back. Okay, let's now get the inside scoop on the Biden White House with my longtime and very dear friend, James Rosen. James is, of course, the White House correspondent for Newsmax, and he joins me now. Hi, James. Monica, great to be with you. Well, it's so good to have you here, and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I Um, worked, I worked, but I I am mindful for the blessing that work is. Yes. Amen to that. I actually worked as well. I put up a big podcast here on Friday uh, with Antonio Sabato Jr., a very extensive Ah. and really fascinating conversation with him. So guys, if you haven't checked that out, please do. But yeah, I know rescuing America, there's not a moment to spare. And so we work around the clock in order to do that. So I really appreciate your time here today. Well, it's good to be with you. You're a dear and longtime friend, as you said. I don't know how many other friends I could get to go to a Holocaust museum with me. So um, <laughs> that was going way back, but yes. Any, anytime, James, that is correct. Um, you and I shared that 
interest, uh, passionate interest in the Holocaust and World War II more broadly. And I do remember going there and I would go again with you in a second. So you <laughs> just you, name, name the time and the place. Um, so let's get into it because I did want to bring you on to give us a view from the Biden White House as you report there every day uh, for Newsmax. And so let me start with this. Since we just came off of a holiday, I have to ask, Biden seems to take a lot of vacations and he just had these five days at a billionaire's home on Nantucket for the holiday. And, um, you know, just about every weekend he goes home to Delaware. Now, nobody is begrudging any president some downtime or time at home. All presidents do this. But whenever he's away like that, we get little to no reporting on what he's doing, who he's seeing, and who he is talking to. Why is that? Well, I agree with you first that um, it's sort of a cheap shot to begrudge the president of the United States time on a golf course or uh, time at Camp David or time at, you know, let's say uh, this president's beach house in, in Rehoboth in Delaware. Uh, the fact is no president really has something like downtime. Uh, it's a 24-7 job. And the state of modern communications is such that they can conduct their duties from anywhere at any time, even in the air. As to the transparency surrounding Mr. Biden's visits to Delaware, I think it's a valid point. Um, but then again, the way modern White Houses work, I, I feel obliged to say that even when the president of the United States, whoever it is, uh, is in Washington, is in the White House, and let's say meets with a foreign leader or has a telephone call with a foreign leader, the readouts that we receive from the White House, from all White Houses, are so threadbare. The president and the president of fill-in-the-blank country X discussed bilateral relations, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, and so on, you know, and uh, they're not very revealing. So I think it's just in the nature of, of modern presidential administrations to disclose as little as possible, except when they feel it in their interest to do so. Uh, the one place where they uh, were, at least where this White House, this and this marks a, tr uh, a change that is unique to this White House, uh, the one place where you see them err on the side of abundance, and it's not really in the way of information so much as propaganda, is in the daily schedule of the president of the United States. When you look at the daily schedule of President Biden, they take this farther than I've ever seen any White House do this. Um, let's Tomorrow, for example, the president's going to be flying to Michigan uh, to visit a, a factory and to speak about um, the economy and uh, the production of the development of, of manufacturing jobs in the high tech sector in this country. Uh, and the way they list it, you know, a previous White House, George W. Bush's, let's say, that what they would say is the president travels to Michigan uh, and visits Factory X to discuss the economy. This White House says things like the president will travel to Michigan tomorrow to discuss our success in creating good, low paying union jobs for the American people, um, you know, in the high tech sector. And it's it's a stuffing of propaganda into what should be a brief terse scheduling line. And that's the only place where you see them sort of err on the side of more rather than less. Uh, but in terms of uh, the president's phone calls and meetings, let's say in Nantucket over the past several days, I don't think there were a whole lot of them, certainly not meetings. Um, in terms of phone calls, again, when, when President Trump would go to Mar-a-Lago, I'm not sure we got very extensive readouts of who he was calling either. You know, but it's there's a difference here where President Trump and I was in the administration in the Treasury Department, Secretary Mnuchin, they cannot so much as sneeze without the entire White House press corps or Treasury press corps demanding to know 
How many sneezes were there? Uh, were they in rapid succession? How many Kleenexes did they use? I mean, the, the press was all over them for, you know, accounting for every second of their official duties. And you just don't have that coming from this White House press corps. They are more than happy just to sit there and be spoon fed. Like you said, what is on the president's daily schedule? It's they're sitting there as propaganda. So they will take the spoon fee. Oh, he's going to Michigan to talk X, Y and Z. So they put that in all of their uh, reporting on it. And yet he disappears for big chunks of time every week, going home to Delaware or Nantucket or wherever he goes. And there's no there's no outrage. There's no demand for transparency. I, I mean, I haven't seen it. How, are they upset about the lack of access or information or not? I think there is a there is a consistent clamor from the press corps for greater transparency from the Biden White House and a consistent refusal on the part of the Biden White House to provide it. Um, and this takes many different forms. You know, Corinne Jean-Pierre, as the White House press secretary, labors under the same misapprehension that governed the skies over the head of her predecessor, Jen Psaki, namely that uh, to expand the questioning uh, beyond the first two to three rows of the White House press briefing room would be to materially uh, diminish the fortunes either of the Republic or of Joe Biden. Um, and I, the White House Correspondents Association, which uh, is responsible for the seating chart, let's say, in the um, in the White House press briefing room and for other aspects of the relationship between the White House and the White House press corps, um, has made numerous complaints to Corinne Jean-Pierre about uh, the lack of um, access for questioners in the remaining four to five rows of the press corps in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the press briefing room. But at the end of the day, the White House Correspondents Association cannot compel Corinne Jean-Pierre uh, to conduct the briefings in one way or another or to expand uh, the list of people who get called on. I mean, I think there you see this kind of... Um, this discontent playing out more and more, both in the White House press briefings, which have become more unruly and, and distempered under Corinne Jean-Pierre's uh, tenure, but also in the president's own very rare and few press conferences. Uh, he gave one in the state dining room that I attended, um, oh, about two weeks ago. Uh, I guess it was the day after the election. Uh, so this would have been November 9. And, you know, he had a list of about six or eight people that he was uh, fumbling his way through and uh, calling on. And you're starting to see the reporters who are not on the, the grand pre-approved list of questioners rebel and shout out at him. And this never used to happen. Uh, and this is a byproduct of the kind of the way that this White House is, is treating the press corps. Everyone in that press briefing room is accredited by the White House Correspondents Association, or they're sitting in for someone who is. And uh, so Newsmax has a seat. There are 49 seats in that press briefing room. Newsmax is in the sixth of the seven rows, dead center with the podium. I occupy that seat at most briefings. Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre came to her office in May. She has yet to call on me even once to ask her a question. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's, uh, it's obvious. I call it the windshield wiper effect, Monica, wherein Corinne uh, extends her forefinger upward. And in searching for someone who is not named James Rosen to call on next, the windshield wiper makes a sort of half semicircle going back and forth as she looks from one side of the room to the other. Who can I call on next? And she'll call on reporters whose questions are, are, are spoken in somewhat broken English and consist of asking if the president would kindly extend greetings to their country, uh, rather than call on someone who's one of the best known reporters in the room and who asks questions that may be challenging, but are certainly sane and respectful. Um, and I happen to think that that is a function of the question that I asked the president 
in the last news conference he gave before he did this one in uh, on November 9. And that was back on January 19 in the East Room. And that's when I asked him a question, I thought very respectfully put, um, about uh, his mental fitness. And I think I've been blackballed since then. Um, yes. I've never I've never seen I've been covering White House press briefings on and off since 1999. And I've never the Clinton era. And I've never seen such naked displays of um, of favoritism and uh, and petty tyranny on the part of of uh, White House officials. Um, and it honestly, it doesn't speak well for uh, their ability to withstand challenging questioning. Uh, but the Do fact you- is, too, the way the media work today no one's going to stand up and call them out on it because it's not that the no news media organization besides Newsmax is going to see it as in their interests to call attention to the fact that Karine Jean-Pierre is afraid of James Rosen. Right. Do any of your colleagues in that room um, who are part of the propaganda press, as they call them, New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, do any of them uh, off the record privately say anything to you like, I'm sorry, this is happening to you. Do they express any kind of sympathy for the position that you've been put in or do they just go about their business? Yes, to both. Uh, Some do and some go about their business. Uh, Some are members of the of the White House Correspondents Association. And I can't say that I subscribe to the the label you put on all of the reporters in that room. Um, Let's never forget, for example, that it was The New York Times that broke the story of Hillary Clinton's private email server, which was ex- exceedingly damaging to her presidential campaign, um, almost you know uh, landed her in uh, very serious legal trouble and broke many stories about it after the first one. However, to your specific question, yes, uh, I've had reporters who are part of what we might call the mainstream media uh, say to me, look, I sympathize because it happened to me under Donald Trump. And the Trump White House officials would not call on me. And, you know, they they then were subjected to the windshield wiper effect. Um, so uh, it's a sad state of affairs, really. And it and it you know, if we all agree that uh, and it's particularly troublesome to hear the president and others wax poetic about the value of a free press in a democratic society, because they are not, by and large, um, behaving in accordance with those with those maxims. Yeah. No, that's right. And, you know, the example that you raise about Mrs. Clinton's email server, again, that was seven years ago now, um, six years ago now, and things have radically changed, I think, for the worse. Um, But let's switch gears a little bit here, James. And I want to ask you, given that the Democrats did better than expected in the midterms, Biden seems to have a bit of a spring in his step. Do you think he's been emboldened? And what do you think their approach is going to be to the new Republican-led Congress? I think he likes to project that he has the wind at his back. Yes, the Democrats defied expectations in the midterms. Uh, He has had a string of legislative victories uh, narrowly achieved, uh, including the placement of the first black woman on the Supreme Court uh, that he can point to. Um, But I think the realists in the Biden White House understand that uh, this uh, election was not uh, any kind of great validation of the Biden agenda or, or performance to date. Um, they they do take heed of the polls and the polls have shown that Mr. Biden's job approval ratings, regardless of, of who the polling organization might be, uh, have remained mired in the low 40s to the high 30s uh, since uh, August of 2021, when the Afghanistan debacle unfolded. 
Uh, they know that they lost the House. They lost control of the House. That's difficult for the Democrats to portray as a victory for their party. And they know that uh, the Senate remains very narrowly in their control. Um, so the president, for example, during this Thanksgiving stretch, uh, conducted a three-minute session with reporters outside the Nantucket Fire Department. Uh, I guess that was on Friday. And um, stated that he was going to try to use the lame duck session of the Congress to enact a new version of the so-called assault weapons ban uh, from 1994. But deep down, they know that they don't have the votes for that. Senator Murphy of uh, of Connecticut, who's the, the Democrat, who is the uh, chief advocate for gun control, tighter gun control laws in America in the Senate, acknowledged over the weekend that they don't have the votes in the Senate to enact that. So um, I think that his legislative agenda is going to be, it was very difficult for him to enact what he has gotten enacted. Um, and uh, a lot of times it turned on uh, the, the whims of one or two centrist Democrats um, I think that now that the House is going to be in Republican control, you're not going to see too many legislative triumphs right. for the Biden White House going forward. Yes, no, that's exactly right. Now, look, uh, Biden can still do a lot of damage by executive order. Are you hearing anything about what they might have planned on that score? I think that you will see additional executive action on the subject of abortion. Um, Democratic governors uh, and and activists on that issue have been pressing the Biden administration for some time to um, take greater steps than they have to date since the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision in June. Uh, so one potential area where you might see executive action, and I recognize fully here, Monica, that I'm straying into terrain into which good reporters seldom like to stray, which is the, the realm of prognostication. We're much better at telling you what has happened. Uh, but I think you might see executive action in the area of abortion and potentially uh, the president issuing some kind of executive order that would permit uh, the conduct of abortions um, on federally owned lands that could include tribal lands that could include military bases, etc. That is one thing that uh, Democratic governors and activists have been pressing him to do. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. What about this lame duck session? They've got another, what, five weeks before the new Congress comes in. Are you hearing anything about what uh, spending bills? I've heard a rumor about a massive omnibus spending bill where they're going to push more money into this inflationary environment. Have you heard anything about that? They have some urgent business to wrap up before this lame duck session uh, lapses. So, and that includes, as you mentioned, funding bills. Uh, they've got until December 16 before the, the government uh, shuts down. Um, and so the question, as always, in these sort of fiscal cliff situations is, which we're seeing more and more, I never remember seeing these when I was a child, but in any case, or when I started paying attention to politics as a teenager. But now they seem routine, these sort of situations where if uh, these deeply polarized uh, Congresses cannot uh, produce a funding bill, the, Cong the, the whole government is going to shut down. We've seen it several times now. Um, so they have until December 16. And the question, as always, is do they just kick the can down the road and get themselves through to January or to December 31? Or do they try and come together and pass something large, as you say, like an omnibus bill that gets them through to the next session. Uh, the Democrats are quite aware that they're going to lose the House. There are many retiring Senate Republicans who want to place their final stamp on policy. Um, one of the things hanging in the balance of this is the, the uh, NDAA, the National Defense Appropriations Authorization, to fund the Pentagon. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has written to members of Congress pleading that they, um, they, they go big here and not kick the can saying that in essence, we cannot compete with China militarily um, if we are uh, perennially on the edge of this, these fiscal cliffs. My words, not his. 
So uh, in terms of funding, they have that to, to take care of. Uh, and one other outstanding piece of business is a measure to uh, for which I believe there are 12 Republican senators who are on board with this to codify um, in legislation the right for people to marry same-sex marriages and interracial marriages. Uh, and that's one other piece of legislative business you might see concluded before the lame duck ends. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Can I ask you about the White House staffing? There are rumors that now that the midterms are over, the chief of staff, Ron Klain, who has been a longtime aide to Joe Biden, um, Senate vice president now as president. But the rumor is he's exhausted and burnt out and he wants out. Um, have you heard that as well? And if so, who might replace him? Hmm. Um, well, it's rather common for um, White Houses to experience staff shakeups at the two year mark. Yes. Um, press secretaries seldom last more than two years at this point. I can't say that I know who might succeed Mr. Klain, and I can't say that I know for sure that he's planning to leave. There is some scuttlebutt recently to the effect that uh, he may stay on. Um, one, again, when the president of the United States asks you to undertake a mission, it's very difficult to turn that individual down. I think that um, Ron Klain is seen as someone who is very effective, uh, someone who represents uh, more of the progressive left side of things. And so um, he has his allies outside of the White House. But I can't say I know how that situation is going to turn out. And I think that any reporter who tells you that they do know how it's going to turn out Mm-hmm. Well, isn't the best podcast guest? <laughs> well, this is why you're here, because you always tell <laughs> us the truth. Um, let me turn in our final moments here, uh, James, to another member of the Biden White House. I have always said that the dog that hasn't barked is Susan Rice. Susan Rice is a foreign policy expert, but she was brought in in the Biden White House to run domestic policy, about which she knows very little to nothing. Furthermore, during the Obama years, she was on TV giving interviews constantly. And I think we have seen her maybe once, maybe twice in two years. What is going on with Susan Rice? Susan Rice occupies a space in the conservative imagination today, uh, wherein Uh, She is seen as um, kind of the Svengali behind the scenes, uh, the true individual running the White House, along with Ron Klain, uh, where you have an absentee president. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is true. Um, I'm sure that she wouldn't like I'm sure that she would prefer some other uh, metaphor than the dog that didn't bark. Um, But uh, I would say that um, we have seen her imprint, um, even though she has taken an unusually a backstage role, given her previous prominence. You'll recall that in the early days of the transition, it was expected she would have a different role, but it required Senate confirmation. And so they gave uh, Susan Rice a position kind of as a domestic policy czar at the White House as an aide to the president that didn't require Senate confirmation. And that was because of her role in the Benghazi incident that you alluded to when she was on television, um, giving interviews five in one day after the Benghazi atrocity and which turned out to be uh, laden with false information. So as we sit here today, um, I would say that Susan Rice, while taking a very quiet role, unusually quiet, has had an outsized impact on the Biden administration's domestic policy and one that's been visible uh, externally. And what do I mean by that? Uh, So, for example, in the uh, policy surrounding student loans, 
that was one of the most recent instances where we saw Susan Rice step out in front of a podium and take questions. Uh, the president's uh, uh, decision to forgive student debt relief, which of course is now being held up and challenged in the courts. The policy toward decriminalization of marijuana offenses. And I'm sure there are a lot of others that we could name, but a, a lot of which, by the way, were unrolled or unveiled, or rolled out um, just prior to uh, the midterm elections and not coincidentally. So I think that uh, she is, in the eyes of the president, a key ally, someone who has had a large imprint on his domestic policy. And I, I bet someone whom you won't see resign or leave the government at the two-year mark. Oh, I, th- I think you're exactly right about all of that. I just find it, it amazing that she is so elusive. I think a lot of her portfolio is shrouded in mystery. And I also, James, just cannot believe that no one in the press, um, yourself accepted, but nobody raised a question about this. I mean, how is the so-called foreign policy expert at all qualified to be running domestic policy and executing on all of this? It's just, it's just amazing. Final question for you. Uh, we got two more years of the Biden administration. The word is there was a story over the weekend that in Nantucket, he was surrounded by Jill and Hunter and the rest of the family, and that the conversation centered on whether or not he was going to run for president again, and that they were carefully considering all aspects to this question. Mm-hmm. What is your sense? What are you hearing? And do you think he's going to be the Democratic nominee again? So the president himself said in that November 9 news conference that it is our intention to run again. Uh, he called it a family decision, but he said it is our intention to run again. Um, and Corinne Jean-Pierre has said the same thing many times. Uh, so we are obliged to take them at their word on that. We saw, I think, over the holiday stretch just now that uh, one potential primary contender, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom, has announced that he will not undertake to primary the president. So that probably factors into his decision as well. And uh, probably Governor Newsom had some information about the president's own thinking in order to arrive at his own determination. Um, I think that um, uh, President Biden believes that he beat Donald Trump fair and square. I think the courts have upheld that determination. I think he regards that if Mr. Trump should secure the Republican nomination again, that he would be able to beat him again. I think that uh, we have a very unsettled Republican field at this time. While Mr. Trump remains the most prominent and popular person within the Republican base, we live, Monica, as you know, in an age of great volatility. One day there is a World Trade Center and one day there isn't. One day there's a Lehman Brothers and one day there isn't. And Donald Trump has both benefited from and fomented some of this volatility But I think it would be a mistake in terms of political analysis to assume that he himself is immune from it. Um, And so anything can happen in the Republican primary side, including, you know, the fact that Mr. Trump is under investigation in various jurisdictions. If Mr. Trump were indicted in one or more of those jurisdictions, would it materially impact his fortunes in a Republican primary? Before 2015, we would never have to ask that question. Today, I think, uh, again, speculating and clearly labeled as such, probably only about 5% maybe of, of, of his supporters who would be inclined to support him in 2024 would regard a, a felony criminal indictment as a bridge too far and, and a reason for them to, to, um, to not support him. I do think that on the Democratic side, there's kind of a dearth of talent who could defeat a Donald Trump. I made the joke when uh, Mr. Biden was undergoing his 
colonoscopy. Uh, I guess this was a little over a year ago, and uh, he was under anesthesia. And the powers of the presidency were for about 90 minutes transferred to the vice president, Kamala Harris. I made the joke that Ms. Harris seized on the occasion to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that the Democrats at this point are congealing around the idea that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee again. Uh, whether he wins, and if so, whether he would serve a full term, all of that is far in the future. Very, very interesting. Uh, certainly the jockeying has begun, I think, on all sides, it, despite what the White House might be telling us about Joe Biden. But the whole thing is going to be fascinating to watch. James, I can't tell you how much I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much for being same. here today. The same, my dear friend. Thank you, Monica. Always. James Rosen, the White House correspondent for Newsmax. Please tune in to Newsmax every day where you can see his excellent reporting from the front of the White House, Pebble Beach, as we call it there. James, you are extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. You bet. We'll be right back. All right, guys, time for the beginning of the week email bag. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Antonio from the dystopian hellscape of New York City writes, hi, Monica. I agree with your analysis and commentary regarding the midterms. It was very insightful. The pandemic lockdowns, and we've been talking about China, right? The pandemic lockdowns opened my eyes to many things, and now the midterm results have as well. It is true that most present-day Democrats would vote for a pineapple as long as it advanced their agenda. They will never vote Republican. Given we can't rely on this group to vote rationally, how can we, the normal people, appeal to Democrats and independents who haven't been radicalized, who haven't bought into the neo-Marxist ideology? We need their votes to win. What do you think we should do? Thank you and love your podcast. Well, thank you so much for this note, Antonio, which raises really important questions here going forward. You are correct that we do need the votes of independents and disaffected Democrats to win, and we should continue to do everything possible to craft policy and messaging to appeal to them on the economy, inflation, energy, crime, the border, etc. The Republican candidates who did that effectively did well. I'm thinking here of Lee Zeldin, who didn't win the gubernatorial race in New York, but he came awfully close by focusing on the issues that matter and also by going into every community, not just the ones that would likely vote for him. It's a good and effective strategy. However, we also need to master the ballot harvesting game. We've talked about this at length on this show. The difference between votes and ballots The Democrats have taken total control of the early voting, mass mail-in voting, ballot harvesting game, and we are very late to this. You can run on policy all day long, but if you're not ballot harvesting, you're screwed. We've not had just one election cycle now. We've had two election cycles where we have been behind the eight ball on this. It's totally unforgivable, but at least now we're hip to it and making the changes needed to win. And we need the leadership to make the changes to win. Because after all, if you don't win, nothing else matters. Play the game on the field on which it's played. 
not on the field as you wish it to be. Thanks to all of you for being here today and for visiting our terrific sponsors. Grateful for that and grateful for all of you on this post-Thanksgiving Monday. Have a terrific start to your week and I will see you right back here on Wednesday with a huge show with Dr. Asim Mahotra on the COVID pandemic, the response, the vaccines, and so on. This is going to be a critical show. Please tell all of your friends you're not going to want to miss a minute of that. And we'll have more, another big show coming up here on Friday. Okay? So God bless, and I will see you right back here on Wednesday. Wednesday.